0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 406 of this podcast podcast. Today is Tuesday, June 7th, 2022, and I've got an interesting mashup to tell you or to share with you or to see if we can make blend in this episode. I would like to start with Obi-Wan Kenobi, <laughs> of all things. Uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi is a limited-run series that Disney, having bought the rights to Star Wars, is right now publishing an episode at a time on their platform, Disney+. And my four older boys and I, we just recently watched the first three episodes with my dad and my younger brother at my brother's house in Milliken. And I've got some thoughts, just briefly, not going to take the whole episode to talk about them. But just briefly, I have some thoughts to share with you. So first off, the premise of the show is from Google, a quick Google search. And I quote, the Jedi master contends with the consequences of his greatest defeat, the downfall and corruption of his one-time friend and apprentice, Anakin Skywalker, who turned to the dark side as evil Sith Lord Darth Vader. So that's the big idea. Big idea behind the show is he is wrestling with the consequences. This is after episode three, Revenge of the Sith, and before Star Wars A New Hope, the original movie, first movie that ever came out in the Star Wars series. So we watched the first three episodes of Obi-Wan Kenobi. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. Uh, there's already controversy, of course, because you know, these are the times that we live in, or else this is just what it's always been since the beginning. This is how people are and uh, get used to it. But the controversy around this show has to do with one of the newly introduced villains, Inquisitor Reva. Disney, for their part, has wasted no time in characterizing as racist the complaints from fans. Ostensibly because the actress Moses Ingram and the character she plays are black and uh, OP, <laughs> as the kids say, uh, overpowered. So she's, you know, not present in anything else in the Star Wars universe. Uh, she's a totally new character, at least so far as I know. But she is a strong black woman. She's a strong black woman. Uh, as strong as they come, and she's a bit overpowered. She's just really, really strong. And where did she come from, and why is she so strong, and why have we never heard of her before? All, I think, fair questions to ask, but maybe not. Maybe not fair, so long as Disney casts a woman of color in the role. Uh, Or at least that's that's the point of contention, right? If Disney is literally going to call... Fans of Star Wars, racists for having any kind of objection, any kind of critique of what they're doing with the franchise. Uh, I just don't think that spells good things for Disney moving forward. Disney's already in enough trouble as it is. Do they really need to be calling their fans racist just for having criticized one particular black character in the franchise? Let's do remember Lando Calrissian way back in the day. I, maybe I missed it. I, I wasn't born yet when those movies came out, but I don't recall there being any controversy about Lando Calrissian. For that matter, when the prequels came out, episodes one, two, and three, I remember absolutely zip-zilch a criticism of Mace Windu as a character. Mace Windu, played by Samuel L. Jackson, very well-liked, great Jedi master, great actor, fun to watch in that role. Very, very cool. It's, Tragic that he meets his end the way that he does. Spoiler alert, sorry. But Mace Windu is as black as they come. Samuel L. Jackson is as black as they come. Nobody had any objections to Mace Windu. Finn in uh, the uh, episode seven, eight, and nine, the former stormtrooper who escapes, he just can't take being a stormtrooper anymore. He can't do this anymore. He's against it, right? He's against it. I remember there being a little bit of criticism just cuz it was kind of campy a little bit for some people. But nevertheless, like there's no question that John Boyega is a good actor. He's a good actor. You know, Samuel L Jackson is a good actor. Uh the gal Moses Ingram they have playing Riva. I just don't I, personally I don't feel like she is a Great actor. And that's not because she's black. It's just because I just don't, she's not an extremely engaging actor. Uh, Ewan McGregor, great actor. Uh, Harrison Ford, great actor. Carrie Fisher, I guess she was okay, but like I didn't, I never felt like she was a lot of fun to watch either. Natalie Portman, great actor. Or I should say actress, but you know, like very good range of believable emotions and responses good with the dialogue and the interactions. And like, there's more to being an actor or an actress than just saying the lines, saying the dialogue stand here. Uh, it was a common criticism of George Lucas, by the way, that he had a tendency, I think Harrison Ford said this once upon a time, uh, George Lucas had a tendency to just say like, okay, here's the script go. And like, he's the director, but yet he's not very good at giving direction in terms of here's the emotion of the moment. Here's your motivation. Here's, you know, like, just do it right. Like just do it. And you know, that wasn't a criticism that was, that was unfair to level at George Lucas as a director. But what will we say if he had been a black director, then it would be racism. I no, I just, I think that's silly. And I think that in order to, go along with that. You either have to be a coward or you have to shut off your brain because it just doesn't add up. So that said, some things that I really liked uh, about the first three episodes, really, really enjoyed. For one, again, Ewan McGregor is a great actor and he's not the only one to reprise his familiar role uh, from the rest of the movies in the series. Uh, Hayden Christensen. Uh, Reprises the role of Darth Vader. Uh, James Earl Jones' voice is definitely used, at least I I assume they got him to do the voices uh, again just for the series. But you know, James Earl Jones has a phenomenal voice. By the way, you you want to talk about black actors? James Earl Jones is the voice of Darth Vader. You don't get any better in the way of voices, voice acting than James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones has a phenomenal voice, even just his voice. And of course they didn't have him like in the suit because he's not, he's not giant, right? Like they had a giant guy wearing the suit because Darth Vader is supposed to be this you know, giant, like bigger than life, imposing, terrifying character. Uh, also robot legs that helps. Uh, Hayden Christensen, by the way, also not a particularly great actor. I don't personally love watching Hayden Christensen act. Uh, he's okay. Like, he's not bad. He's just, I wouldn't say he's as good of an actor as Ewan McGregor. I think Ewan McGregor is great. Uh, Liam Neeson, great, great actor. Qui-Gon Jen, great actor. Fantastic. But, again, great to see Ewan McGregor reprising the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's fun to see him communicating as much as he does through show, don't tell just looks on his face when various scenes, various dialogue, various happenings are going on really, really great at telling the story with limited uh, frames and limited perspectives for various shots and whatnot. It's very compelling to have the whole series predicated on the toll that it took on Obi-Wan Kenobi that he had killed his apprentice, his friend, his brother. You were my brother, you know, he says to Anakin. It's so very compelling to have the show be an exploration of his dealing with that, right? Not to give anything away if you haven't seen it yet, but you plan to. And I'll just say this, it's been 10 years, And he didn't know that Anakin was still alive. He basically has been hiding under a rock trying to watch over Anakin. Uh, I'm sorry, not Anakin, uh, Luke. He's been trying to watch over Luke on Tatooine uh, in the care of Owen and Beru Lars. And he's literally been hiding under a rock. He doesn't even know that Anakin's still alive. And then he finds out in one of the episodes, he finds out that Anakin is still alive and all the feels, right? Like all the feels are there on his face because he's a great actor. And you feel for him that on one level, he's relieved. On another level, he is terrified. On one level, he is happy to hear that Anakin is alive because he thought he had killed him. But on another level, he's very, very concerned because he knows that Anakin is very powerful. So I going not give... Any spoilers away. If you haven't seen it yet, go check it out. If you're a Star Wars fan, I think you'll really, really like it. I think they're doing a, a fine job with it, actually. The controversy is annoying, but if you don't know about the controversy, you can watch the show without worrying about it. And that's part of the reason why I've just tried to, by and large, not do any reading about it. I just uh, let me watch it, right? Let me watch it and take it on its own merits. And if Disney wants to be foolish and accuse Their fan base, or rather, more to the point, the Star Wars fan base of racism, uh, that's Disney's business. But if this show can be well-made and well-produced and fun and a good part of the overall Star Wars story, uh, cool, right? It's It's just a story. It's not a religion. It shouldn't be an obsession. But it is a fun story, and it is something I certainly grew up with. So go check it out, and I think you'll be glad you did. Hopefully they keep on like they've started. And hopefully they finish well. Finish strong. Speaking of finishing well, speaking of finishing strong, I am reading right now The Whole Christ by Sinclair B. E. Ferguson, Scottish theologian. The Whole Christ Legalism, Antinomianism, and Gospel Assurance, Why the Marrow Controversy Still Matters. Is a book that came up on Audible as a recommendation based on another book that I was recently reading and reviewed, All That Is in God by James A. Dolazal. You can go back and check out two episodes ago where I reviewed that book. And I intend, once I finish uh, The Whole Christ, I intend to do a book review of it as well. So I'm not going to do that one right now. I'm just telling you, I'm a third of the way through chapter 11. I've got an hour left to listen to on double speed. I will definitely have some thoughts to share when I'm finished. It's a very, very important topic. How do we avoid being legalistic, where we start to think that keeping the law is what saves us, or keeps us saved, if you will, on the one hand, or on the other? antinomianism, which just means lawlessness essentially you're you're anti nomo you're anti law you are against the law. how do you avoid being legalistic or lawless uh both and at the same time and what what is this right like what what is this marrow controversy of which you speak sinclair Ferguson very interesting story, and I'm not quite sure I fully fully understand it uh with what I've listened to so far, but we'll get into that more. I'll make sure that I've got my notes straight before we do the review of the book coming up. For now, what I will say is that the foreword written by Tim Keller really threw me off. It really threw me off. I it was not familiar with Sinclair Ferguson until actually in a recent discussion on our preaching and teaching uh, Signal Group, Kale Rogers, who had just recently uh, preached a sermon at church, mentioned that Sinclair Ferguson is somebody who's been a, a big help to him and an encouragement and all of that. And so I I didn't know who Sinclair Ferguson was. And then lo and behold, my neighbor Two Houses Town ended up sending me a Sinclair Ferguson uh, sermon that he had given, if you will, uh, at a Ligonier's conference several years ago. And so then I watched that and I listened to it and I thought, well, this is this is good, right? I wouldn't say that it's, you know, mind blowing, um, but just steady as she goes, plain spoken, clear cut. Uh, this is it's good. It's good stuff. So that was part of why I ended up buying this book, The Whole Christ, by Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, but what does it start out with? It starts out with <laughs> a forward written by tim keller and uh i that that just throws me off it it really really does anytime i find that i agree with something that keller says or writes uh on the face of it i've just like kind of like "Ah, hmm you know i'm very skeptical uh keller and i just to explain why keller's stance on social justice and the gospel in recent years I could not disagree with more strongly. I find it extremely concerning. I find it very worrisome. I think it is. I, I think it's a gross error at a minimum, and maybe worse. But I, I'm still just in the category of it's wrong. He's wrong, and it's dangerously wrong. And I don't think people should be looking to him for guidance until he repents. I think he should recant his position on social justice and do it as publicly as he has advocated for social justice in recent years. He has advocated for CRT and social justice, and he should just as publicly walk that back and repent. Now, that said, nevertheless, what does that have to do with The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson? Well, I'm reminded of something John Harris Host of the podcast Conversations That Matter said recently about some high profile endorsements of Dane Ortland's book Gentle and Lowly, which our church is actually going through right now. We got over 200 free copies from Crossway due to an anonymous but generous donation, trying to get these books into as many hands across America as possible, as many hands in as many churches as possible across America. But Russell Moore and Paul David Tripp both are highlighted as endorsers of this book, high profile uh, endorsements from Russell Moore and Paul David Tripp are both featured prominently on the amazon.com listing for Gentle and Lowly. But I really appreciate what John Harris said in his podcast review of the book that is just because Russell Moore likes something, that doesn't mean we need to take the opposite position just to make sure we never agree with Russell Moore. That would be silly and foolish and unnecessary, and it would hurt our credibility. It really would. And and where would it stop? You know, he gives the example of, you know, if Russell Moore likes Johnny Cash music, for instance, which supposedly Russell Moore does, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden you've got to throw out all your Johnny Cash music, for instance, for example. But with Keller writing the foreword for Sinclair Ferguson's book, I would say as well here that doesn't mean that Ferguson needs to be dismissed just because he's been a colleague and friend of Tim Keller or just because six years ago he asked Keller to write this foreword. You know, who knows why? Sinclair Ferguson's relationship with Tim Keller uh, may really not have ever delved into this question, or maybe they've discussed it thoroughly and they're friends nevertheless. Uh, Maybe, I don't know, right? Like there's all kinds of possibilities. They could be friends and disagree profoundly on this question. And yet Ferguson regards him as a brother, knowing him personally. uh, I don't know. And quite frankly, uh, I'm not sure I need to know because it's kind of like the business with Obi-Wan. Right, the, the Obi One show. If there's a whole lot of shenanigans going on with Disney accusing Star Wars fans of racism just because they don't like Third Sister Reva, Inquisitor Reva, uh, you know, if I if I don't have to know about that in order to enjoy the show itself on its own merits, well, then so also I think I don't have to know precisely why Sinclair Ferguson asked Tim Keller to write the foreword to his book. I don't have to know that in order to consider his book The Whole Christ on its merits. Is this true? Is this true? Now, if I find out that Sinclair Ferguson is also as uh woke as my third cup of coffee, uh then okay, like, you know, that does color the way that I read his book, but there's lots of scenarios that I can imagine that are very plausible for why Uh, He might very strongly disagree on the social justice position and yet, nevertheless, regard Keller as a brother or six years ago, he at least regarded him as a brother. So more on that to come. Stay tuned. Coming up soon, we'll do a book review of The Whole Christ and uh, I'll give you more of my thoughts on it and its topic. But an interesting thing. Uh, happened yesterday as I was listening to it I was working on laundry folding laundry sorting laundry and I heard the name Erskine mentioned several times several times as being you know central to this whole controversy this marrow controversy as it's known I wasn't familiar with it at all and yet now that I am reading about it of course I'm kind of curious and I hear the name Erskine and it just so happens Why that caught my attention is because I have had a poem by a Ralph Erskine open in a tab on my web browser for a few weeks now, ever since my friend Bobby McPherson shared it with us at a recent meeting for Inglatiai Veritas. So when I hear Erskine in The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson, I'm thinking to myself, is this the same guy? Could this be the same guy? Well, it turns out it's not, but I did the research, and the man being referenced by Sinclair Ferguson as at the center of the marrow controversy was a brother to Ralph Erskine, who wrote this poem I've been mulling over. And just for anyhow, because it it is fun, it's a fun poem, and uh, I do smoke a pipe, so I have to justify myself to all of you. I have to have your approval. I must... I must have your good opinion. I can't live without it. Uh, I'll go ahead and read for you this poem by Ralph Erskine, taken from ChristiansInContext.com, Part 1. This Indian weed, now withered quite, though green at noon, cut down at night, shows thy decay, all flesh is hay. Thus think and smoke tobacco. The pipe, so lily like and weak, Does thus thy mortal state bespeak? Thou art even such, gone with a touch. Thus think, and smoke tobacco. And when the smoke ascends on high, Then thou behold'st the vanity of worldly stuff, Gone with a puff. Thus think, and smoke tobacco. And when the pipe grows foul within, Think on thy soul defiled with sin. For then the fire it does require, thus think and smoke tobacco. And seest the ashes cast away, then to thyself thou mayest say, that to the dust return thou must, thus think and smoke tobacco. Part two. Was this small plant for thee cut down, so was the plant of great renown, which mercy sends for nobler ends, thus think. And smoke tobacco. Doth juice medicinal proceed From such a naughty foreign weed? Then what's the power Of Jesse's flower? Thus think and smoke tobacco. The promise like the pipe inlays And by the mouth of faith conveys What virtue flows From Sharon's rose. Thus think and smoke tobacco. In vain the unlighted pipe you blow Your pain In inward means are so. Till heavenly fire thy heart inspire. Thus think and smoke tobacco. The smoke like burning incense towers. So should a praying heart of yours. With ardent cries surmount the skies. Thus think and smoke tobacco. So there you have it. There is smoking spiritualized. You're welcome. Now this... Actually, this is an interesting story. The Ministers Erskine. And I'll admit, I am reading for you Wikipedia, essentially the Wikipedia articles for three men. Uh, As we go through here, I'm relying on Wikipedia to steer me right, to tell me true. But the funny thing about Wikipedia is that it really does reflect what the world thinks on a certain thing you find that something is just really skewed and not corrected, well then, we know that the people who care most about this care enough about it and have an internet connection. uh, They are the ones with a skewed mindset. And if you find that the whole thing is skewed on some very important topics because Wikipedia is a bit of a lefty-left institution at the top, well then, so also, you kind of know who is running the show around the world and in our country and online. So this is reflective. It doesn't necessarily mean that this is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But I think with regards to these ministers, Erskine, odds are high that these haven't been fiddled with too much, these entries. So there you have it. Uh, An interesting thing before we move on, the author for part one of that poem I just read for you is unknown. Uh, Someone who commented, Down below in the share from Christians in Context.com, pointed that out. We don't know who the author of part one was, but Ralph Erskine wrote part two. So he essentially finished it. He found the poem that was already in circulation and then just added to it. So that's fun. Now, who was Ralph Erskine? He was born 1685, died 1752. He was a Scottish churchman, and the son of Henry Erskine. He was also the younger brother of another prominent churchman, Ebenezer Erskine. He was chaplain and tutor to the black colonel John Erskine from 1705 to 1709. After studying at the University of Edinburgh, Ralph was ordained assistant minister at Dunferline in 1711. He ratified the protests which his brother laid on the table of the assembly after being rebuked for his Synod sermon, but he did not formally withdraw from the establishment till 1737. He was also present at, though not a member of, the first meeting of the Associate Presbytery. When the severance took place over the oath administered to Burgesses, he adhered, along with his brother, to the burgher section. His works consist of sermons, poetical paraphrases, and gospel sonnets. The gospel sonnets have frequently appeared separately, his Life and Diary, edited by the Reverend D. Fraser, was published in 1834. There's a larger-than-life-sized bronze statue of Ralph Erskine on a pedestal not far from the high street in the center of Dumpfirm He was a free gardener being initiated in the Dumpfirm Lodge of Free Gardeners in 1721. And there you have it. That is Ralph Erskine. He was brother to Ebenezer Erskine, 1680 to 1754, also a Scottish minister, whose actions led to the establishment of the Secession Church, formed by dissenters from the Church of Scotland. Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine were two sons of Scottish Presbyterian minister Henry Erskine, 1624 to 1696, also from Wikipedia. Really interesting cat, this Henry Erskine. Erskine was born at Dryburg in the parish of Merton, Berwickshire, one of the younger sons of Ralph Erskine of Schilfield, a cadet of the family of the Earl of Mar. Henry was brought up under the ministry of Mr. Simpson, Minister of Dryburg. Erskine's first charge was at Cornhill-on-Tweed in Northumberland. According to Robert Woodrow, he was ordained in 1649, but according to others, This occurred 10 years later. From this charge, he was ejected by the Act of Uniformity in 1662. The revenues of his charge, not having been paid to him, he went to London to petition the king. But after a delay, he was told that unless he would conform, he should have nothing. On his voyage home, he was driven by a storm into Harwick and preached there, but his wife could not be prevailed on to settle in the town, which is, as an aside... Kind of funny. It's it's just a little bit kind of sort of funny to me. He wanted to settle down there. They obviously were willing to let him preach, and his wife just wasn't having it. She. <laughs> they talked about it, and she said, absolutely not, and that was the end of it. Uh, funny. Could not be prevailed on to settle in the town. <laughs> on leaving Cornhill, Erskine went to Dryberg where he lived in a house of his brothers. From time to time he exercised his ministry in a quiet way, till arousing the suspicion of Urquhart of Mildrum, one of those soldiers who scoured the country to put down convecticles. Now as an aside here too, so I wasn't familiar with what a convecticle is, actually. If you're unfamiliar, convecticle is essentially the Latin uh, equivalent of church. A convectical is the Latin equivalent for the Greek uh, ecclesia. That's what a convecticle is. But also, too, it's you know typically like a more informal. Just hey, we're going to get together and talk. We're just we're, we're just talking. We're not having a church service. We're just gathering together in Jesus' name and talking about Him and how much we love Him and worshiping and all that. Uh, so he was told. He was he was warned. To not preach any more in convecticles, but he refused. He was ordered to pay a fine and to be imprisoned on the bass rock till he should pay the fine and promise to preach no more. Being in poor health, he petitioned that the sentence might be changed to banishment from the kingdom. This was allowed, and he settled first at Parkridge near Carlisle and then at Monolaw's near Cornhill, where his son Ralph was born. Apprehended again, Erskine was imprisoned at Newcastle, but after his release in 1685, the King's Indulgence, 1687, enabled him to continue his ministry without molestation. He preached at Whitsam, near Berwick, and after the Revolution was admitted Minister of Churnside, where he died in 1696 at the age of 72. It is said that when he could not give his children a dinner, he would give them a tune on his zither. Thomas Boston of Ettrick testified to the profound impression made on him in his boyhood by hearing Erskine preach at Whitsum. Erskine was twice married, first in 1653, to a lady of whom little is known, and again to Margaret Halcrow, a descendant of an old family in Orkney. His two distinguished sons, Ralph and Ebenezer, were children of the second marriage. So, that is Henry Erskine. Interesting, right? Interesting that we have someone who essentially is being chased around for nonconformity with the Act of Uniformity in 1662. So what is that, right? Like, what is the Act of Uniformity from 1662? To quote again Wikipedia, it was an act of the Parliament of England prescribing the form of public prayers administration of sacraments and other rites of the established Church of England according to the rites and ceremonies prescribed in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Adherence to this was required in order to hold any office in government or the Church, although the new version of the Book of Common Prayer prescribed by the Act was so new that most people had never even seen a copy The act also required that the Book of Common Prayer be truly and exactly translated into the British or Welsh tongue. It also explicitly required Episcopal ordination for all ministers, i.e. deacons, priests, bishops, which had to be reintroduced since the Puritans had abolished many features of the Church during the Civil War. A few sections of this act were still in force in the United Kingdom at the end of 2010, As an immediate result of this act, over 2,000 clergymen refused to take the oath and were expelled from the Church of England in what became known as the Great Ejection of 1662. Although there had already been ministers outside the established church, this created the concept of nonconformity, with a substantial section of English society excluded from public affairs for a century and a half. The Act of Uniformity itself is one of four crucial pieces of legislation known as the Clarendon Code, named after Edward Hyde, Earl of Clarendon, Charles II's Lord Chancellor. They are the Corporation Act 1661. This first of the four statutes which made up the Clarendon Code required all municipal officials to take Anglican communion and formally reject the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643. The effect of this act was to exclude nonconformists from public office this legislation was rescinded in 1828. So it was in effect for quite some time, if you think about it. The Act of Uniformity, 1662, which we were just talking more specifically about. The second statute made use of the Book of Common Prayer compulsory in religious service. Upwards of 2,000 clergy refused to comply with this act and were forced to resign their livings. The Conventicle Act, 1664. This act forbade conventicles a meeting for unauthorized worship of more than five people who were not members of the same household. The purpose was to prevent dissenting religious groups from meeting. The Five Mile Act, 1665. This final act of the Clarendon Code was aimed at nonconformist ministers who were forbidden from coming within five miles of incorporated towns or the place of their former livings. They were also forbidden to teach in schools. This act was not rescinded until 1812. Combined with the Test Act, the Corporation Acts excluded all nonconformists from holding civil or military office and prevented them from being awarded degrees by the Universities of Cambridge and Oxford. Another act, the Quaker Act, 1662, required subjects to swear an oath of allegiance to the king, which Quakers did not do, out of religious conviction. It set out specific penalties for first a fine of up to five pounds or three months imprisonment with hard labor. Second, a fine of up to 10 pounds or six months imprisonment with hard labor. And third, transportation. Offense. It also allowed that should the defendant subsequently agree to swear oaths and not attend unlawful assemblies as defined by the act, then all penalties would be canceled. The Book of Common Prayer introduced by Charles II was substantially the same as Elizabeth's version of 1559, itself based on Thomas Cranmer's Earlier version of 1552, apart from minor changes, this remains the official and permanent legal version of prayer authorized by Parliament and Church. So, there you have it. That's who Henry Erskine is. When it says that he was chased around, that is what it was about. That's what he was being chased around about. And then his two sons are born while they are in exile. So to speak, more or less, having been thrown out because they would not abide by, could not abide by, this conformity. Now, interestingly enough, if we turn again to Ebenezer Erskine, Wikipedia has this to say about him: Ebenezer's father, Henry Erskine, served as minister at Cornhill on Tweed, Northumberland, but was ejected in 1662 under the Act of Uniformity, which now you know what that is, and imprisoned for several years. Ebenezer and his brother Ralph were both born during this difficult period in their father's life. After the glorious revolution of 1688, Henry was appointed to the parish of Churnside, Berwickshire. In 1703, after studying at the University of Edinburgh, Ebenezer was ordained as minister of Portmoke, Kinrosshire. A year later, he married Alison Turpy. They remained in Portmoke for 28 years until in the autumn of 1731, he moved to the West Church Stirling. Sometime before this, at the General Assembly of 1722, a group of men, including Ebenezer, had been rebuked and admonished for defending the doctrines contained in the book The Marrow of Modern Divinity. In 1733, a sermon he preached on lay patronage at the Synod of Perth led to new accusations being leveled against him. He was compelled to defend himself from rebuke by appealing to the General Assembly, but the Assembly supported his accusers. After fruitless attempts to obtain a hearing, he, along with William Wilson of Perth, Alexander Moncrieff of Abernethy, and James Fisher of Kinclaven, was suspended from the ministry by the Commission of Assembly in November of that year. In protest against this sentence, the suspended ministers constituted themselves as a separate church court under the name the Associate Presbytery. In 1739, they were summoned to appear before the General Assembly, but did not attend because they did not acknowledge its authority. They were deposed by the Church of Scotland the following year. In the following years, a large number of people joined their communion. The Associate Presbytery remained united until 1747, when a division took place over how the church should respond to a new oath required of all Burgesses. Erskine joined with the Burger section, becoming their professor of theology. He continued to preach to a large and influential congregation in Stirling until his death. He was a very popular preacher and a man of considerable force of character. He was noted for acting on principle with honesty and courage. In 1820, the Burger and anti burger sections of the Secession Church were reunited, followed in 1847 by their union with the Relief Synod as the United Presbyterian Church of Scotland. The majority of Erskine's published works or sermons, his Life and Diary, edited by the Reverend Donald Fraser, was published in 1840. His works were published in 1785. In the United States, part of the Associate Presbyterian Church united with most of the Reformed Presbyterian Church in 1782, forming the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. This denomination, which continues today, operates Erskine College and Seminary in due west South Carolina. Erskine was a free gardener, he was initiated in the dumfirm Line Lodge of Free Gardeners in 1722, the same year as his patron, John Leslie, 8th Earl of Roths. It is worthy of note that after he became a free gardener, his sermons began to include numerous horticultural allusions. So, by the way, fun fact, since it's all one big rabbit hole that I just got sucked into, as you can tell, I was curious, oh, what's a free gardener? <laughs> One thing leads to another, to another, to another. It's almost like binge watching, but it's binge research, I guess. The Order of Free Gardeners, also according to Wikipedia, is a fraternal society that was founded in Scotland in the middle of the 17th century and later spread to England and Ireland. Like numerous other friendly societies of the time, its principal aim was the sharing of secret knowledge linked to the profession and mutual aid. In the 19th century, its activities of mutual insurance became predominant by the end of the 20th century, it had become almost entirely extinct. In 1849, the Ancient Order of Free Gardeners, Scotland, formed at Penicuik. In 1956, due to failing attendance in Scotland, the Grand Lodge Charter was transferred to Cape Town, South Africa. In September 2005, the Ancient Order returned to Scotland when the Countess of Elgin Lodge No. 105 received its charter to meet in Dissert Fife, 2006 sees the return of the Grand Lodge of Free Gardeners, Scotland from Cape Town to Scotland. Although the Free Gardeners have always remained independent of Freemasonry, the history and organization of the two orders show numerous similarities. Some commentators have pointed to possible mutual influences in the ancient history of the two organizations. So that is curious as well. But you might be wondering what is all this about? What is the conclusion of the matter? What is all this business? Why does it matter? Well, for a couple of reasons, one, and we'll get into this more when I do the review of the heart of Christ, but for one, the history of the church is filled with disagreement. Sometimes the disagreement is entirely needful and valid and important, and it concerns key, crucial, non-negotiable doctrinal matters. Sometimes the disagreement has to do with matters of conscience that are debatable. And yet, as the business with the Church of England and the kings and queens of England, and especially with the Acts of Union, which put the United Kingdom together in the form that we know of it uh, today, what you find is very often there was not a toleration for dissent, for nonconformity. And it even got to the point that you could not, for one, be a minister if you were a nonconformist. You couldn't hold public office if you were a nonconformist. You couldn't even get together quietly with five or more people who weren't members of your own household to worship if you were a nonconformist. You couldn't get a degree from universities if you were a nonconformist. Essentially, what happened was there was a two-tiered system of justice. You would be allowed authority and credibility and the ability to speak if your politics were such-and-such. But if your politics were not such-and-such or if your theology was not such-and-such and and therefore your politics were not such-and-such, you were shut out of public life for all intents and purposes. You weren't even allowed to live within such-and-such an amount of space uh, to any town where people were going to be just on the off chance that you might in passing conversation, share what you believe. And I think what that comes to in our day is that increasingly that is where we're at. That's where we're going. This whole ESG business, the whole woke business is very, very concerning because I think it gets at a intolerance towards nonconformity. You can't even criticize people a character in a Star Wars miniseries without being accused of essentially a kind of woke heresy. So then what happens when it comes into the church? What happens when it comes into your friendships? What happens when it comes into your relationship with customers or an employer or corporations or businesses that you purchase things from? What do you do? Well, historically, we have something of a precedent for men standing on conscience and being willing willing to pay a price, being willing to count the cost and to pay it. Because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? That's the big idea. That is the big idea for sharing all that history with you. And I, for one, I find it fascinating that you have in the story of these Erskine ministers, you have a father who was willing to pay that cost and his two sons who are born in the midst of that cost being paid. And what do they do when they grow up? They stick to their convictions. They adhere to their convictions as well. And they end up being influential. And one of them writes, uh, at least the second part of a great little poem that I enjoy about smoking a pipe. And I like it. I like it. I like that he wrote it. I think it's great. Um, Also too, I will have more to share with you soon regarding that marrow controversy, because that is what this whole book by Sinclair Ferguson is about. A lot more that needs to be said about how we think of legalism and lawlessness and the gospel and grace and God's character and his purposes for us. Lots, lots more to say about it. In the meantime, you might just check it out, read the book yourself, but if you're interested, I'll be giving it a review coming up soon. Unfortunately, though, that is all the time I have for this episode. I got to run. I've got actually my cousin, Micah Hirschberger and his son, James, stopping in to visit with us this afternoon. We're going to have them for coffee and pizza and hanging out, and uh, that'll be a joy, and we're excited about it. But that is to say as well, I should go and help my wife and children make ready and call that good for this episode. So as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.